Guys and gals, Stewie's Wrestling Podcast is the hottest thing going in 2020. It's going to be the hottest thing going in 2021. And if you miss out on riding this train, guess what? You're not a fan of pro wrestling, and you're not a fan of anything that's hot. Because this is a hot commodity. Check out Stu's Wrestling Podcast. You're listening to Stu's Wrestling Podcast. It's time. Your host, Stu Palmer. We have a huge, huge guest for episode 135 of Stu's Wrestling Podcast. And it's none other than UFC Hall of Famer, Luthez Wrestling Hall of Famer, the world's most dangerous man, Ken Shamrock. Ken polarised both the sports of pro wrestling and MMA. He had countless records in the UFC, you'll get to hear about that, and his pride in breaking pay-per-view numbers and figures when he was prevalent in the UFC. We also look into his WWF, WWE career, how quickly he got a title shot against Shawn Michaels back at the Generation X, the pay-per-view in 1997. His King of the Ring run as well. We cover that. And also fan questions from you guys too. Some good MMA questions and some good pro wrestling questions. A good mix on this episode today with Ken. We're crossing both codes and it's going to be amazing. So without further ado, here he is, the world's most dangerous man, Ken Shamrock, on Stu's Wrestling Podcast today. Here we go. My guest today is an MMA legend, legend of pro wrestling, a Hall of Famer in the UFC, also in the Hall of Fame for Luke Fez as well, Intercontinental Champion in WWE, Tag Team Champion in WWE too. It's Mr. Ken Shamrock. It's an absolute pleasure to have you on today, sir. Yeah, I appreciate you having me on. Thank you. I'm going to open with 1997. Now, Bret Hart is my favourite of all time. When you were guest referee, I wasn't aware of UFC prior to you coming in when you came into WWE. So just being in Chicago that night, Ken, you know, with Austin and Bret for that iconic match that we, you know, still love years later. And your role in the match, man. Yeah, it was interesting too because <clears throat> I was, you know, very, very uh, green, uh you know, coming into this match, you know, I think I did one, one kind of warm up. Uh, I'd been fighting and, and, and capturing belts in Japan and the United States and the MMA world. And then to go into the pro wrestling, uh, at that level, which I'd never been at before. That was a, that was the top level of, of, of talent. And to be put in that spot was, was, was uncomfortable because here you had Bret Hart. And you had Stone Cold, which were, you know, two really, I mean, in, in, in some people's minds, the greatest wrestlers of all time, um, going at one another. And you got this <laughs> Ken Shamrock coming. <laughs> it has no experience whatsoever at this level. And so going into that match, it was, I was uncomfortable. I wasn't sure whether or not I could pull it off. Like, I never really acted much before. I never really you know, understood characters and how to play them off. And so going into it, I was like telling myself, you know, I, I hope I don't screw this up because like I said, the, the level of talent was, was there. But I would say probably five minutes into the match, I completely forgot that I was, re I was refing a wrestling match. I mean, I got so into it 
that the match became real to me because those guys were so good at getting after one another and, and doing the things they did. I mean, they were connecting and they were hitting each other and they were going after each other. It was very physical. And uh, for me, I felt right at home coming out of the MMA world, going into that wrestling match and them guys putting on that kind of show. How was it being in Chicago as well? We know how iconic it is there. Uh, the crowd, how, how did it feel with the crowd? Obviously, I know you, you've been in front of crowds with, with the MMA anyway prior to that. But yeah, you know, how hostile a Chicago crowd can be. How, how did you burst off the crowd, man? Chicago's great because they're an aggressive crowd. And whether you're a heel, baby face, they're going to come after you. And that's what you want with fans. You want them to engage. I don't, even if it's bad, you still want them to engage with you because that helps you with being able to be more excited about putting your match together, going in and putting on a show. Chicago was awesome because, like I said, the fans were so engaged. Uh, even when I was in the match and they hardly basically knew me from the MMA world, but a lot of them didn't know me in the wrestling world. So I got a lot of, uh, a lot of support after that match, uh, going into the locker room, doing a meet and greet after that, meeting some of the fans. They were awesome. But the fan base inside the arena was unbelievable. You know, you imagine, you know, imagine friends of mine have gone over to, to events in, in, the, in the stadium, you know, in the arena. And yeah, they just said how, how awesome it was to be there. Ken, going into Raw on the 7th of April of 1997. Now, I had the best of Raw Volume 5 on VHS. I got it with some Christmas money one year. And your bout, the no-holds-bar bout with Vernon White, obviously Lions Den member at the time. You know, it was very quick, wasn't it? You reffed and then you were in that no-holds-bar match. I always remember seeing that on VHS. I must have watched that VHS 500 times, I would say. Yeah, I think it was it was a shock to most people because they weren't seeing what they normally would see. Yeah. Um, and so I was able to really let people know, the ones that didn't know where I'd come from, let them know who I was uh, as far as being a wrestler, pro wrestler. I was going to come in and be the world's most dangerous man, Ken Shamrock, from the world of mixed martial arts and no holds barred. And that's what they got to see that night. Then I got to do the Vader match. So they really got to see who Ken Shamrock was going to be in pro wrestling. <clears throat> absolutely, absolutely. Now, you were thrust into the main event. You know, we're talking like December of 1997 with Sean at the Degeneration X pay-per-view. I so badly wanted you to win that match. Obviously, off, off the back of Montreal, my hero was gone. I, I, you know, we didn't really know what was going on. We, we were a lot younger, but... Yeah, I was so behind you to beat Sean that night. But yeah, you were thrust into the title picture. You know, it's very quick, quick turnaround for you, wasn't it, coming into the WWE? Yeah, it was a roller coaster ride for me because I was moving so fast. Um, and then I got, you know, into that title shot thing pretty quick. And then all of a sudden it went away. Uh, it just kind of fizzled out. So it was, like I said, it was a roller coaster. But when I look back on it, and I look at all the people that we had in the Attitude Era, it was stacked. So it wasn't anything that was pointed at me. Uh, it was more of, a, I think, an issue with just the talent that we had. There was just so many really good guys. It was so hard. I'm almost sure it was pretty, probably pretty difficult for people trying to write these scripts and these storylines to be able to keep up with everything that was going on. How, how good was Sean? 
How was it getting in there with him, you know, relatively early on in your run there? How, how did you feel with him? You know, how were your dealings with Sean? We've heard a lot over the years about how he was back then. You know, he's, he's, he's a changed man, as we all know. But at the time, how was it working with him? Was it was it easy for you? Yeah, um, I never had issues with Sean. Um, Sean always was good to me. I was good to him. Uh, he treated me with respect. When we got in the ring, uh, I was very appreciative. Uh, that he was bumping for me and that he was giving me these different opportunities in there. Um, so, you know, I know sometimes when Sean gets in there against some other guys, he eats them up um, because he can't, he's that good. But with me, man, he shared the ring with me and, and, and he put me over in different places. So um, I've never had issues with him. I've always gotten along with them and I appreciated the time I had with him in the ring. Absolutely, absolutely. Another accolade that I didn't manage to get in on the intro. We're going to talk about accolades that you know you had across combat sports and WWE. But yeah, winning the King of the Ring in 1998, man. How how was that? And working the Rock, I loved it. I loved it with the Rock, and uh, yeah, I wanted you to beat the Rock as well. I was very much for, for the face Ken Shamrock back then. Yeah, it was interesting because when they let me know that I was going over. It was pretty exciting for me. And so being able to go in there and work with the rock, uh, we were both kind of, you know, cutting our teeth, trying to figure out what direction we were going to go in pro wrestling. And, you know, being able to have that match with him really, I think set the tone for both our, um, you know, storylines and set us up for being able to move forward and have some great matches. So for him, it, it was, uh, um, I think a learning experience for him. And for me, it was also a learning experience. Um, but the match, if you watch the match, man, I, I, I that was a great match. I mean, I really loved that match. I thought it was really well done. Uh, we could put that up against any of the great matches. Could you could you have foreseen how stratospheric the rock was gonna be even then? I know they were I know they were bringing him through the mid-card, you know, to get him up to the precipice at the top, but yeah, just but the rock and what, what you felt at the time there in 1998, you know, you worked him so extensively. Yeah, I was, I tell people ask, though, that was probably my favorite time. I had a lot of great matches and I was truly blessed, man, to be working with all the top stars. It was awesome. But me and The Rock actually had chemistry. And uh, so we were able to really put together some great matches. You know, The Rock is a lifer for pro wrestling. You know, I came in as a hobby, something that I wanted to do. It would be fun. Um, and to see whether I could do it or not. Uh, because I know I tried it on earlier in my career, yeah. and then I end up getting into, you know, fighting and other things, which took off. So I went back to it, wanted to see whether or not I could literally be at that level. And fortunately for me, I could. And I had a great run. But, you know, I think Rock had his vision set on moving and being one of the greatest wrestlers of all time. I had the same same mentality but i also had other things that were waving in my mind at the same time because i left mma because i had to uh because of the financial situation the ufc was going through at the time so i needed to go somewhere else to make the money i needed to support the lifestyle i created so i went there kind of you know not because i i didn't want to or i wanted to it was because it was a necessity but once i got there man i fell in love with it and it was just so awesome but it was still that thing in the back of my mind of whether or not I completed my journey in MMA. So I think that held me up from really being able to achieve the level of success at the at capturing that belt. It's because there was always something in there. It felt like I hadn't finished the other career I started. 
Absolutely. Absolutely. We're going very chronological here, Ken. I am going to flip-flop. I'm going to go back as well, but staying with WWE in the run there. Uh, going going into the corporation, I was like, Shamrock's heel now. Oh, you know, I was like, no. It, just uh, how, how was that pitched to you initially, you know, through Vince and how, how that was formulated? I'd love to hear that. Yeah, basically, I just had to be myself, you know, um, and then whoever they paired me with, whatever kind of storylines that they wrote, I would naturally fit in with that too. I could be the heel or babyface because I didn't play either one. It was literally just the situations I was put in, whether I was going to be a heel or a babyface, because of my character and because of who I was. Um, it didn't matter um, because all it took was them to turn the story around just a bit, put me up with some other other people, and all of a sudden I'm a heel. Um, so I don't I don't think I was ever really truly a heel, and I don't think I ever truly was a babyface. I was just that guy that kicked everybody's ass. Yeah. Yeah, man, absolutely. You, you had a run, obviously, I said in the intro, your tag team title run with, with the boss man, with the great Ray trailer. How was that? How How is it tagging, you know, going into that from singles? You know, I'd, I'd love to hear about, I'd love to hear how, how it was with the big man. And uh, he, he was so well-respected and we lost him too soon, Ken. Yeah, the boss man was a genuine dude. I got to meet him towards the end of his career when we were tagging together. Just a really good guy. Um, helped me out quite a bit whenever I needed to ask questions. He was a great leader in the ring, um, you know. So he was one of the good ones, like Owen Hart, you know. Just a good dude. Um, worked hard. Uh, appreciated his craft. Loved the fans. And then loved the people he worked with. And, and he gave his all when he went in there. He wanted to put together the best match he could. Uh, so I really appreciated him. I appreciated working with him. <laughs> no, he, here of you guys being in the ring, always here. He's for such a big guy it, working with him. It's like light, light is a feather for you guys. Obviously, fan perspective, what we're seeing, but yeah, just the guy said just how careful he was and how he how he took care of his opponent. Yeah, he was. He was. When you watch him, it looks like he's hurting people, right? I mean, because he's just got that that attitude and that aggressiveness, and especially when he was healing. I mean, he, he was he was just mean, right? But outside of that, dude, he was a just a big teddy bear. He's just a really good guy. That's cool, man. I'm glad I've asked about him. I loved him, loved him growing up. Absolutely. Now, the union, Ken. I was so I was buzzed when they put you guys together. Mankind, obviously, Mitt Foley, big show, and test. Why? Why did it not go longer? Because I was buzzing for that when they put you guys together. And I thought these guys are gonna have a long run as a faction. So yeah, just how they got you together, but also why was it you know, put, put to the side so soon, man. Uh, I, I think it has to do with when I talked a little bit earlier about just having so much going on. There was so many storylines, so many things happening that there was a lot of different writers doing a lot of different things for storylines. And for whatever reason, that one there, they just decided they were just going to pull it because remember, there was a lot of stuff happening during that time. So I just don't think there was any effort or mind. It was just something they thought they would try to put together. When they did, they just kind of lost focus of doing anything more with it. It just fizzled out. And so it was a lot of that. That was kind of my career, really, if you think about it. It was almost like they pushed me to a point, and then they didn't know what to do with me after that. So they just put me with people to, just, just to do it. So I was kind of that guy, and the, some of the storylines that we were put in with factions or teams and things like that, that just kind of lost focus of any of the writers because they had other things that they were focused on. 
It would have really helped test at the time as well, you know, establishing him. Big Show had only been in the company a couple of months, hadn't they, after coming over from WCW. Uh, in, in my mind, as a fan, it was like, this This could be amazing, you know, going up against the, the, the heel heel factions and stuff like that. It just, uh, I really thought it was going to have some longevity initially. Yeah, they, like I said, I think they just lost that, that direction of where they were going to go with it. Because again, like I said, there was a lot going on in those times, a lot of celebrities, a lot of superstars. Um, and so I, I, that that happened quite a bit uh, with me and different storylines I was involved with. It was almost like it just didn't get the focus it needed. I'm going to go back, obviously, years later, obviously, when you've done interviews and I've seen stuff over the years, you were in pro wrestling, as you alluded to earlier, in the late 90s, into the sorry, in the late 80s to the early 90s. So, yeah, just I'd love to hear about that and that time, you know, prior to WWF, WWE. Because I, I didn't realise until years later that you were, you know, I just thought it was combat sports, you know, and then into WWE. Yeah, no, I, I actually started with Buzz Sawyer where I did training with him in Sacramento. I drive up from Reno with my dad and we go down there and we, we train, sort of. Um but Buzz was going through some hard times. I know he's working over in Japan at the time. He'd go over there every now and then. He'd come back. And so when I went down to a school to work out, we did kind of went through this, this little tryout that he put me through. And uh, I remember rolling with him on a wrestling mat, like collegiate. And um, he was very, very strong. He was very, very good. I could tell at one time he was, he was, he was state champion. Um, but I dominated him after about 10 minutes of us going after it. Right. Um, but before that it was pretty competitive. Um, but I just got the best of him in the end. Well, <clears throat> Buzz's idea that he came up with, he's always this guy trying to find out ways to make money. His, his mind just works that way. Um, he would do these tryouts and he would bring these guys in and they would pay him, I don't know, I couldn't, I don't know the exact amount, but it was a few thousand dollars. And so he would tell me, you know, like he did with me, he said, just go with them and make them quit. Cause that's what he was trying to do with me. It was because I went down and tried out, paid money. He was trying to, to roll and just stump me because he, he would do it with everybody else and he'd just keep the money because they quit. Well, <laughs> once he couldn't do that with me, he was like, okay. Um, he brought me in, but. I, re I remember going there and I wasn't learning anything. He was teaching me how to bump. Um, he was teaching me how to do these little things. We didn't even have a ring. We were doing it inside a racquetball court. And so he had these mats down. So I remember trying to take a bump on the floor was brutal. And so he was just doing all these little things, talking about psychology, but not doing anything. We would go up every single weekend and do nothing. And so after a while, he came to me and he goes, hey, I got these, uh, I'm going to bring in the guys. I'm going to start doing a tryout. I'm going to start a wrestling school. Where we'll have a ring and all these other things. So he started trying to tell me how he's going to do all these things, which I didn't understand because he only had two other guys there besides myself. And he was teaching us lockups and headlocks and all these things, but on a, on a, on a collegiate wrestling mat, like there was no ring. So then he says he's going to do these tryouts and he wants me to, to be the guy that goes in and tries them out because I didn't understand at the time. And he charged him all this money and he said, I want you to make sure they don't make it. And then I, it clicked with me at the time. Well, that's what he's trying to do with me, but it didn't work. So I go in there. He had some big dudes come in. Guys that play football, guys that wrestle, guys that box, guys that done all these different things. They want to be wrestlers. And I would go in there and I would stretch them. And they would quit. And then they'd walk <laughs> away and they lost their money. 
And I did that for like six months, literally beating him up. And he would kick me down three, four hundred dollars to pay for my gas and then food, whatever we were coming up there and doing that. And my dad, after a while, said, you know, this isn't working. He goes, we got to find something else. So he ended up calling down and found a place in Mooresville, North Carolina, which was Nelson Royals and Gene Anderson's wrestling school. And of course, uh, we went down there and I went to do the, go do the tryout. In my head, I'm thinking they're going to, because, you know, I, I my first experience was that. Well, I went down there and Nelson had this ring and this warehouse and this, this property out there. And I was like, okay, this looks a lot different. But then he had us run out in these dirt clods. Like there was probably seven or eight of us trying out. And so he had us run for like a half hour. Then he had us do all these different calisthenics and push-ups and everything. And I knew what he was doing. He was doing, he was trying to wear us out. And of course, I didn't care because I was always in really great shape. So I would push it and I was running and I was kind of crushing everybody there. Well, then he brings us into the wrestling uh, warehouse where the ring is. He goes, okay, get in the ring. And a couple guys get in there and he says, no, just one. And so then he brings in this guy. He's probably about 6'2", six, 6'3", six, kind of stocky. He goes about 230, 240. And so he gets in the ring and he says, I want you guys to, to wrestle for however long I tell you to. Just go until I tell you to quit. And then I'm thinking in my head, they're going to try to beat us up and make us quit. I mean, because I've been through it already. <laughs> I was like, okay. So this guy wrestles with the first guy and he ends up making the dude quit. And then uh, he tells me to get in there. And so he has another guy get in uh, who was another kid there that was uh, supposedly a, because I was pretty stocky, pretty big. And so he put in a kid that was better than the one that just went in uh, and, and a lot bigger too. So we go at it and I just beat the snot out of the dude, just tore him up. <laughs> and so, and so that, but Buzz says, okay, good job. And the other other kids that went through it, um, there was two of them that passed besides myself. So it wasn't a, a thing where they were trying to, to beat people up. Um, they were literally, genuinely, guys that were going to make it had to pass these tryouts. And if they couldn't, they didn't. And so they gave them the opportunity to pass. Some of them just gave up because they didn't have the cardio. But there was me and two other people that had made it. And um, so once I made it, that's where I really started. I think Nelson saw something to me. I won. Uh, two tough man contests during my time down there that I fought in outside of that. Um, so he saw an opportunity with a, a legitimate guy who was truly somebody that had some skill behind him, like myself. So he he pushed me. And I think within, I would say my first match was with Nelson. I mean, I literally had my first match with him. He, he went in with me and we worked together and he was the champion. He beat me. But, you know, it was a great experience because I got to go with somebody that had a really good hand and it helped me understand what it was like. I would say six months later, I ended up uh, winning the strap. And uh, after I caught the strap, I think uh, a year or so, um, he sent me to Japan. So I got to go down uh, with Baba's group and work with uh, the Japan guys for, for uh, six weeks. I was there for six weeks. Um, and learned a lot down there. And this was in the year and a year and a half of time of actually going into pro wrestling. And of course, as we know now, the history is, as I met some people uh, like Dean Malenko, who knew the shoot group, the uh, uh, hybrid type pro wrestling group, uh, where I got connected. And I went down and did the same thing with the tryout um, and ended up having my first match with those guys and never looked back after that because I knew that's, even though that was pro wrestling, a hybrid uh, pro wrestling at the time, 
uh, it was still, you were still doing things that would work, like legitimately in a shoot would work. And so for me, I fell in love with that. And then, of course, we see where it went, where myself, Benaki, um, Suzuki, um, when they came to me and wanted me to join their group, they basically were saying, let's see what it looks like if it's real. Like how that hybrid pro wrestling, let's make it real. And that's where Pankers came in. So that's what you get where people go always wonder what would it be, be like if wrestling was real? Well, watch Pankers. <laughs> absolutely, absolutely. How, how was it going to Japan the first time? You know, uh, you know, culture, I do, I've asked several guests on this show who've been over, just they, they love it, they, they love it. But how was it for you, you know, from your psyche, your perspective going over there from the States the first time? Yeah, yeah. I mean, because I, I hadn't really been at a level of competing in front of large fans, you know, obviously football and things of that nature. But but when you're talking about like something like that it was a major production, I, I was never really involved in that. So I didn't understand the difference between competing in the U.S. crowd and competing in front of the Japan crowd, because in Japan, they were quiet and they would be watching and they would ooh and all at the same time. And I think for a lot of people, I found out as I got farther into my career, would stress out in matches because it was they weren't screaming and yelling and making noise, so they thought that they weren't you know performing well. So then they would end up pushing themselves too hard and they would get tired. Um, but for me, I kind of got that was norm for me was to go in and work in front of seventeen thousand people and be able to hear a pin drop until you did something right. So they really, uh, the fans really observed. It was very different because they literally observed every little thing that was going on. Uh, and then they would measure your talents and your strengths and your weaknesses. And so it was really, uh, for me to start out that way, it was true blessing because when I came to this, when I was competing in the States, it was like complete opposite. It was like, it was loud and screaming and yelling. And it was like, <laughs> then I really got enough up. <laughs> It's amazing. It's just amazing what you've what you've done, man. Just everything, all your accolades. Amazing. I'm gonna fast forward to UFC. Tito Ortiz will be later. We've had a question we have from somebody. I will save Tito for later, but going back to like 93, you know, Dan Seven, Bon Fry, the Gracies, you know, Royce Gracie, just just UFC, the, the early portion there and just how it was, the tournaments and stuff, man. That, just, I'd love to hear about it. I've watched so many fights over the years. I love going back, back into the history, especially with your fights. Yeah, it was, I would say it was like the wild, wild west where they were trying to bring law into cities and states. Um, and there was these gunfights happening all the time and trying to figure out who's right, who's wrong. And, you know, no, you can't do that. And, yeah, you can do this over here. That's what it was like in the early UFCs, because whatever state we went to, there seems like there was always something that UFC had to jump through to get it to happen. Even though they, months in advance, they were cleared to have the show. But once it got to the month and the advertising, then you would start getting all this political uprise about having that event there because everybody thought it was like human cockfighting. And um, unfortunately, people truly didn't understand the skill sets that went into doing this kind of stuff like we know today. But it was wild because we would go to these places and, you know, uh, everything would be all peachy. And next thing you know, they would take out punching or you 
if you're going to punch, you had to put a glove on. And, um, you know, then they shut it down. And you have to move the, uh, the octagon overnight to another city, set it up and fight the next day. And that happened. Um, I mean, it was crazy. And I think that, um, my, one of my, one of my experiences that I'll, I will never forget and really set the tone for where UFC is today was the very first event I went to. Um, I didn't believe it was going to happen because back in, you know, 93, we had sanctioning bodies. Nobody would strike a wrestler or a boxer wouldn't, you know, try to take somebody down. It was really separated. The, 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 the disciplines were in boxes and you just didn't go out of those boxes. You stayed in your box. And so to be able to have an event like that where the, it was a no-no, you just didn't do that. But I thought it broke the, the silence of, of people talking about which sport is the greatest, which discipline is the greatest, you know, who would win if they did this and that. There's always those talks, but they were never brought out. And I thought this was great because now you literally have this thing where you're saying, let's find out. You know, our Davies like saying, hey, let's find out. Let's find out what discipline really is the best. Now, understand this. The Gracies were doing this for 50 years. Hoist have been doing it for 20 plus years. This type of stuff, like Knowles barred this stuff. So for everybody else going in, you're like, yeah, like I want to do it. But what does it look like? And because we have sanctioning bodies. And so going into this, I went to Japan. I won my, I defended my title over there. I go into, uh, to, uh, uh, um, Denver, Colorado. I fly in, I think it was three days. I, I'm not sure. It's been a while, but I remember just going in right after me fighting and I get there and no one has ever uh, understood this because even in the States, there was no one to train other than the Gracie's like this. So going in, nobody had the, the mixed martial arts discipline except myself because I was fighting over in Japan. <clears throat> and so going into this, it was so much unknown. And I remember Hoist walking around in his gi. I was like jammers to me. Like, why are you? It's a day before. What are you doing? And it was just like, he looked like a little boy. And like, man, you guys are going to get sued, man. Somebody's going to die here. Because if this was going to happen the way they say it was, which in my mind, I'm like, it can't. There's just no way. Especially seeing some of the guys that were there, other than Gerard Godot. I just felt like, wow, this is going to turn into a wrestling event, pro wrestling event. But it didn't. I mean, like, the closer we got to it, the more real it became. <clears throat> the only issue I had was... When I signed up for this with Art Davies, they told me there were no rules. And I meant like kicking them in the head when they're on the ground, mm -hmm. you know, elbowing them, headbutting them, all these. He said, yep. He says, the only thing you can't do is bite. And I was like, are eye gouges? No biting, no eye gouging. And I was like, but if you do, they don't stop the fight. They'll just fine you. I'm like, fine you? You were only making $1,000 for the opening fight. He's like, whoa. <laughs> What do they got to lose? If they win the fight, they get more out of it. So I pull somebody's eyeball out or bite their cheek off just to win, right? It's like they got the win, period. So it was really like the Wild Wild West. Anything goes. And so when they had the rules meeting, I was discouraged because I was told you can 
do whatever, even bite and eye gouging, but you get fine, but it won't stop. So I'm thinking this is literally a no holds. Why are we having a rules meeting? And so we go and have a rules meeting, and then lo and behold, they took my shoes away, which is something that I use. I've never been on a, a mat without shoes, which is now is normal, but back then, it, until you experience it, it's very, very slick compared to wearing wrestling shoes. So it was completely odd for me not to have them on. And then they wouldn't let the strikers wrap their hands with tape. Like they wanted to take their hands. They said no. But they let Art Jefferson wear one boxing glove. And I was like, mm. what is, what's going on here? Like, so it gets to me, but you're there, right? And so as they're doing these things, in your head, you're going, there's nothing we can do about it because they'll just replace us with someone else. And I don't want to be replaced. I want to do this. So, but that was the, out of the, all of that whole thing, that experience right there was very disappointing um, because I felt like it, 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 it tarnished the, the legitimacy of that tournament by putting certain stipulations in there that gave other people disadvantage and gave other people advantages and i thought it was that was unfair considering everybody else was already at a disadvantage because we've never done anything like this before mm -hmm. that you know hoist and his family had been doing this for 50 plus years hoist with 20 years of experience under his belt there was no need for them to do that i think they would have been just fine with everything being the way they said it was going to be and letting it let it play out and let's see what happens but unfortunately it didn't happen that way but it doesn't take away what we experienced. I remember watching that first fight with Gerard Godot. Unfriggin' believable. If it was me or Hoist that started that thing, people would have walked out of the arena because they would have said, that was fake, that's not real, because ours didn't look real. Mm -hmm. But that kick to the face, man, uh-uh. <laughs> <laughs> you cannot deny that. That was real. And that, to me, is the... The, the thing I remember the most about the UFC and my experience, other than titles, I, I you know, I enjoyed all the titles. But I think that right there really set the tone for me. And I got so excited that this was literally legitimate, real fighting and that I didn't have to wonder whether or not it was going to be real or not. What a pain in the arse John McCain was. Just from my watching clips more latterly i didn't i wasn't watching at the time i don't even know if we were getting it in the uk uh what a pain in the arse you're saying about governing bodies you can't go into this state you can't go into that state what did what were you thinking as a fighter you know that's that it was just restrictions galore wasn't it i know it was the early days but it, did it piss you off well i think it got a lot of us frustrated because again we were the ones trying to prepare for the fights and then constantly having to jump through hoops to satisfy state laws uh, after they had already been granted to do the fights there, then they would come in, you know, 48 hours before the fight or a week before and tell you, oh, you can't do this. So it was very, very frustrating for everyone, but for Bob Meyerowitz and, and the money they were spending to try to put these things on didn't go to the fighters, didn't go to the production. It went to these attorneys because they were fighting constantly trying to keep this thing th go through there. And that's why... I think it's a shame that we don't recognize Bob Meyerowitz and, and Art Davies, Campbell McLaren. Um, I mean, there's just, there's, and I know I'm forgetting some of them, but there's just a lot of guys that 
We're constantly trying to keep UFC alive and spend a lot of money doing it so that we have what we have today because it could have easily been shut down if those guys would have just backed up and said, okay, you know, I quit, I give up, uh, we're, we're going to go do something else and shut it down. They would never be around again because there's no way that the state would or people would allow it to, to come back up again. They would have shut it down, make sure it stayed down. Um, but those guys fought through. They made it work. And it cost them dearly to, to make that happen. And so for that, I'm always appreciative of what those guys have done because we have what we have today. And I have a legacy and a Hall of Fame career because of it. And look, look at the look at the accolades from uh, buy rates from events as well. You know, you set so many records. It's just amazing. And countless times. You know I mean, it wasn't just once or twice. You know, you, you were a pioneer, you know, in, in every facet of it, in my well, mind. Well, that's where... That's where I think that because it's been so long, a lot of these fans say I'd never won a title. It's like, what are you talking about, man? I won so many titles. It's, it's, it's crazy. But it's because it's been so long ago, they don't understand it or recognize it. But at the same time, I was also the best fighter in the world, ranked number one. Um, and so uh, during those times, it was like, I think every single time for almost a year or two years, every time I stepped into the, the cage, I broke pay-per-view records. It was like one time after another. Each time, I would always raise the bar higher and higher uh, so that those records were being broken all the time. And even when I had fights with Royce Gracie, Dan Severn, um, Tito Ortiz, every single time that I was going in there, records were being broke. And I had different opponents doing it. So a lot of that stuff kind of gets swept under the rug because it has been so long ago. But again, I still go back um to the to the early early stages of you know the guys that the, the you know the the pioneers of this thing the guys that were spending the money mm -hmm. uh, going to court fighting to keep ufc alive um those are the ones that we have to be appreciative because they could have easily just walked away because they made a lot of money in, in the early days with doing the ufc they could have walked away from it and just said okay we're done but they didn't they fought through it got so deep into debt because of the, the, the bills and stuff they had with, with the fighting the laws. And the, you know, it, they ended up selling it, obviously, because they couldn't continue to keep doing what they were doing. But thank goodness the Fertitas came in. They had a lot of connections with the commission. They had a lot of connections with sanctioning it. And we are we are today. But without those guys in the early stages, the pioneers of this, we wouldn't have what we have. Absolutely. Absolutely, it's crazy just how it, how it evolved and, and like I say where it where it is today. I tell you what, I've got to ask you about our UK fighters and and how prevalent they're becoming. They, they were having to go over to America to train, and and now there's a lot there's a lot of places where you can train over here to a high level. Uh, just like the likes of I don't know if you've seen much of Tom Aspinall at heavyweight. Whether you've had chance, uh, he, he's a standout. Obviously, I know we got injured against Curtis Blades, and you know Leon, Leon Edwards getting the welterweight title as well. Uh, just your thoughts on UK MMA and, you know, thrusting themselves to the top in UFC. Yeah, I think it's awesome, you know, to be able to see not just, you know, England, but countries all over the world that you're starting to see that mixture of, of talent. And it's not just locked into the US. I mean, it's everywhere. And the talent is unbelievable. Um, that we're seeing coming out so so you know it's a a, a national uh, experience for people and it's been going on now for 30 years 
And now we're starting to see the benefits of that, where people are now training from the time that they're 10 years old till they're 22 or 23 years old. And you're seeing the excellence of that for a long time. Like myself, I didn't start till I was 29 years old. Um, you know, that's, that's pretty long, but I was able to do a lot in that short amount of time. But now you're seeing these guys start at 10 years old, five years old, even with just the, the basic stuff. So now we're starting to see that. We're starting to see that level of talent with people that have been training that long and getting in there and actually performing. And for me, it's exciting to see because I think that we haven't seen the best of it yet. I think that once we get a another organization uh, that will compete with the UFC, I think then you're going to start seeing the level of talent and the level of your experience at watching these fights um, increase because now you have competition. And it's it's definitely an international event. And so it's come a long ways <laughs> since I stepped in there in Denver, Colorado, and the, the roughness of what everybody knew to where we are now is incredible. It's so cool. I, I'm from Wales, and I tell you what, the guys down in the south that have come into the you know to the premier organization and have done so well. Jack Shaw being trained by his father, he had a loss in his last fight, but just to be on on the you know being able to go to America to fight. You know, it's not just on a London card, which you can't get tickets to the London event. They just go. It's it's crazy. Well, what I'd like to see because I think that England is definitely one of the the powerhouses in the MMA market. I would love to see a, a competition um, with an event there. I mean, like have someone down there put an event together like the UFC and compete with the UFC because now you have an international event where now you got a US, you got an England. Um, to me, I think England is a great spot for someone to put something together like that, a production, a huge production uh, like that. It's something that I looked at and I think would be very, very interesting to be able to do that because, you know, Eng the English fans are going to follow the hometown <laughs> production. And you see the, and I think it pushes each production to be great because now you can't just sit on your laurels because you got nobody pushing you. Now you get somebody up there that's now the same level and is competing with you. Now you both challenge one another and it makes you better. Absolutely. Absolutely. Ken, I've now got to ask you, this is a topic which is, you know, caused, there's been a lot of uproar about it. Celebrities, social media, people going into boxing, MMA, combat sports. Now, you're, you trained in it for so many years. You're a pioneer. What, what are your thoughts about these guys going in for white collar events? I, Jake Paul does my head in, by the way. I can't stand him, but he can sell himself. But it's just, I'm, I'm a purist of the combat sports, uh, boxing especially. So, yeah, your thoughts on these guys coming in? You know, they're not professionals. You can't hate someone for making money. I mean, you could be jealous. Uh, you, you, can't, you can't hate success. And, you know, that's what it is. He, he's had success at what he's doing. And I think because of the social platforms that now everybody has, um. You should be, we should be learning from this. We should be going, wait a minute. If this guy can do it, I could do it in this thing. So there's so many opportunities out there for people to make money for themselves if they just put their minds to it. Now, do you, do I agree with what he's doing and how he's doing it now? Um, I, I, I think that, you know, calling yourself a professional boxer 
means that you got to be a professional boxer. You got to put yourself in that position. Um, so obviously that's something I think that has to do more with commission and how they sanction these fights. Um, at that level, it has nothing to do with him. He's doing what he's able to do. And you can't, you can't, you know, fault him for that because he's, the door is open for him. He's going to do it. I would, I mean, if I was him and making all that, but I'd do it. Um, so it's got to be some regulations and stuff put in there that says, okay, yeah, you can do it, but you can't call it a professional match. It's not a professional match. It's an amateur or an entertainment event or, or whatever they want to do, but it can't be in the, in the rankings. And I don't know if that's the case or not, but they're still in the, in their promotions. It's a professional boxing match. Um, and I think that that's the only thing that I would probably say that I don't like is that um, it should be make sure that it's known that this is a celebrity match or that it's uh, an amateur match, um, but it's not a professional boxing because he hasn't done the things to be a professional. Now, the way he's doing this, I got no issue with him jumping on and using platforms and fighting guys that are older and that, you know, maybe past their prime. He's making good moves and he's making a lot of money. <laughs> God bless him. <laughs> um, but I think it's up to the sanctioning body in boxing mm -hmm. or in the combat sports to make sure that it's listed properly. So you're not, you're not insulting guys that have put 20 years in their craft. Um, and you've got somebody that's saying they're a professional fighter when they're, they haven't done that yet. And I think that's what's rubbing some boxers wrong is that he's being put in a category of a professional boxer when he hasn't done that. Um, so I just think that that's it. I think that we all got to get off our high horse and realize that <laughs> just because it's being said he, that, you know, they're fighting and, and he's got four and or whatever it is, a pro boxer, uh, whatever it is. I think we just got to stop reading all that stuff and just enjoy the, the what you're watching. It's entertainment. Mm -hmm. Watch it. Enjoy it for what it is. It's entertainment. And I'm going to watch this. I'm going to enjoy it. I'm going to have fun with it. Uh, and I'm not going to knock the guy for doing it because his bank account is huge. So can't knock that. You know, you love what he's doing. There's a lot of great things that he's done that we can all learn from in our own businesses on how we can put ourselves in better positions. I've got to be fair to him, promoting um, Amanda Serrano and Katie Taylor for the boxing, where he was in with Eddie Hearn. He, he articulates himself well in the promotional sense. I like that. But I like how you encompass that there, you know, the, the pros and cons of it. But I thought Anderson Silva was going to win that because he beat Chavez Jr. I couldn't believe it. I couldn't believe it. I'm about as good at predicting as Chael Sonnen, though. My predictions are so, so off. But I thought Anderson was going to put him to sleep. I really did, you know. I, I told him that before that fight that I thought that Anderson Silva would probably get knocked out. Right, okay. And so I, I mm -hmm. because because I'm a fighter, because I know when you hit mm -hmm. your wall as a mm -hmm. fighter, as an older fighter, you, you, you're not going to beat most people. Mm -hmm. you, you, you just, you the fight's out of you because you fought for so long. It's not, you don't have that excitement. You don't have that energy level. Your body doesn't work the same. And so that most people can walk in, amateurs can walk in and beat you because you don't have the desire to win. And so I think that's where Anderson was. And that's why I called it. I said, you know, I think you're probably going to get knocked. That wouldn't surprise me if you got knocked out. Um, because, you I mean, Jake is, Jake, he's, he's hungry and he's big, he's strong. He hits hard. 
And so I don't know if people know this, but just because you're not a professional boxer don't mean you can't get knocked out. You get knocked out by anyone who can hit hard, and he hits hard. So um, I think a lot of people are overlooking the fact that yeah, this isn't like, you know, going against somebody that's in their prime that's mm -hmm. 20 and 0, and he beats them. He's going against people that used to be good, and we've lost the fight. We don't have the desire to win or to go out and do this. And he is a very athletic and he hits very hard. And so this guy, if he put his time in and in two, three, four more years, he could get where he wants to go and fight a ranked fighter. I truly believe that because he's got the desire, the hunger, the athletic ability to do it. Thanks for that, Ken. No, it's good. It's good hearing your insight on it being you know, being a fighter at the end of the day. And yeah, absolutely. I've got to ask you. I've got to ask you. What about the Gypsy King, Tyson Fury? You know, it's uh, that we didn't get Joshua and him fighting down in London. An absolute travesty. But what are your thoughts on him? You know, and what what he's managed to do. I think he's he's one of those kind of guys that you look at, you don't think much of until he. He puts his fists on you <laughs> and then you realize it wait a minute or you hit him and he walks through it uh yeah so he's a beast there's no question he's got he's got a fighter's mentality he's got a fighter's heart desire um i would have i would love to see him in a bare knuckle fight because that's got to be it's got to be in him mm -hmm. i mean like he's yeah. got to have that desire to want to tell show people that not only can he fight with gloves on, but he can fight without gloves on. Like, he could be that gypsy fighter. What What do you think about them not being able to pencil it in and get it done with him and Joshua? And we know, obviously, Usyk's there to unify into next year. He wasn't ready for it. Uh, just, what well, it's an absolute failure for the fans, I think, that, you know, Frank Warren and Eddie Hearn can't mesh it together. Uh, and Bob Arum as well. Bob Arum's obviously involved. Uh, it, I, it was a travesty that that isn't happening in December. He's going to hammer Chisora. He's fought Chisora twice. He, he's an animal Chisora, but it's the same outcome. But it's just a shame for the fans, I think, that we're not getting the fight that we've wanted for years domestically and the numbers it can do, potentially. Well, this might even make it for a bigger event if they do get it put together because it didn't happen the first time. And so people are anticipating it. So if they can get it to happen later... I think now you've even gained more attention and, mm -hmm. and more angst uh, for it to happen. So you never know. Maybe this is just a strategic plan uh, to really build the fight more. Absolutely. What, where do you see Usyk? You know, he's gone up the weights, fighter's perspective. Do you think he's got a chance against Fury? I know he's more, you know, multi. He's got all different styles. But I just feel he made Joshua look bad. Joshua couldn't establish the jab being the bigger man. Uh, and, and it happened in the second fight. I think Fury, I think Fury will be too much for Usyk. What how do you feel with him? Yeah, I think Tyson uh he he he's got tremendous pressure. I mean, he pressures you and he can take a punch. Um uh, and he hits hard. So it, you're, it's it's not like you got you're going to be able to outpoint him, stick him, move, do any of this. He's going to constantly keep pressuring him. You may win one, two, three, couple rounds in the beginning, but I think as those rounds move on, he's just going to dominate. Absolutely, no, no. That's I like. I'd like to hear about the boxing as well from from you. That's that's cool. Now I'd be remiss not to ask about Valor. 
bare knuckle vbk you got the t-shirt on there can you know the legalization of bare knuckle and yeah i've got i've got to ask you this is current now can so yeah just how how that's come to be and you know where you're going to be going with that great great i'm i'm learning to like bare knuckle i thought this is a bit too barbaric for me initially with the other companies but i'm learning to like it can yeah, it's, it's, again, I think the uncomfortableness is just like the UFC when it first came out, it was no holes barred. People were uncomfortable with it because they, the only thing they see it was when someone was trying to kill each other on the street. So it was hard for people to watch it because they thought it was too violent. But in reality, it's, it's, it's your long-term damages are a lot less because you don't get to hit somebody as many times and you hurt your hand if you don't hit them right and you hit them too hard. So for me, I think that I've always understood because I've done all of it and I understand what's safe and what's not for me. I think it's just educating the people. But we did our first bare knuckle event, the Balor bare knuckle event uh, in 2019. And uh, it was huge. I mean, uh, the, the, the response that we got because of the vision I had with this, I didn't want to be like other bare knuckle events. I wanted to come out and be different. But if I was going to be different, I wanted to figure out how I could make it better and, and be different. And so some of the things that I had gone through early on in my career, uh, understanding some of the, the, I guess, with the frustrations for the fans was like when they were sitting down on the floor, they had those, they bought those good seats. They were constantly trying to look around fences and ropes and turnbuckles and different things that were going on. It, could, it was hard to see. And you had, you know, you bought these tickets that were supposed to be good. And so I thought to myself, how do I make that more um, visual, a visual explosion for fans? And so I came up with this thought of like, okay, what if we took the ropes down? What if we took the cages down and we just kind of sunk this, the flat surface down a little bit so you had a slant on the edges so the fighters would know where the, where the out-of-bounds was? And that way fans wouldn't always have to be looking through anything to get a better experience, a viewing experience. And so we did that, and I had to think, well, would that – would that be how would that be with for fighters to be able to stay in and fight? And I remember my own experiences because I've done I fought a long time, and I thought to myself, I've never, I've never had to be told to fight or told to stay inside the cage or the ropes. Uh, so I thought to myself, that shouldn't be an issue because if guys know there's nothing for them to back up into, they're going to circle, and they're not going to be able to escape by bouncing off the ropes or bouncing off a cage or laying on a cage to be able to rest for a minute and just counter somebody. You have to continually keep using footwork and fight. And so I thought, we're going to do that. I think that'll be, we'll see how it works out. Didn't know. We just did it just to see what it would do. And then I also said, okay, in a stand-up fight, when you're in there fighting and watching boxing, what's the most boring thing or frustrating thing that you see in a boxing match? And I thought to myself, I kept thinking, yeah, okay, the clinch. Like, that is so frustrating when Mike Tyson would start unloading somebody, they grab him, like the Holyfield fight. They grab him, grab him. Every time he started to get off, and I said, you know what? We're going to take out clinching. Force fighters to fight in the inside or move. So we took out clinching. The next thing was that frustrated me when they, they put gloves on MMA fighters. It frustrated me to no end after about six months and understanding after they kept telling everybody that they were trying to protect the fighters. Uh, it was frustrating because the way they sold it was they were trying to protect the fighters from taking, you know, head damage. 
Well, after I was in it for about six months, I was like, that's not true. That's like, now you're basically putting something on a hand that's patting it. So you're not protecting the fighter's head. You're protecting the fighter's hand. So he can hit you more times. And he doesn't have to be accurate with his striking and not damage his hand. And so that was frustrating for me. And I always said, if I could do something when I would do a promotion of my own, that's the first thing I would change was I would go back to God-given talent, like bare knuckle, no tape, no gloves, because now it forces fighters to have to be accurate and not throw haymakers or big bombs and then get bailed out if they miss and hit them in the head and not do anything to their hand. It's like literally you would break your hand if you throw bombs in haymakers and miss your target. And so that was one thing I took out that. Once we did the event, we did our first event, not knowing whether fighters would fall out of the ring or how it would work. But in my mind, I was like, no way. Fighters are fighters. They come to fight. And so we did the event, and it was unbelievable. The, the visual, the, the explosion, the visual explosion that you got to see, it was unbelievable. And, of course, then COVID hit, and uh, we had to uh, make some adjustments because I didn't want to do the, uh, fights without the fans. Um, in this case, this type of case. So we started working on social platforms. We changed our direction a little bit. So now we're literally on the verge of, of relaunching our, our, our fights coming up. January 7th, we're doing our launch party, which is I'm going to be on the Valor app. So go to ValorBK.com or you can go to our Instagram on Valor. We have an app. On January 7th, I'm going to be sitting down and watching our first fights with everyone that wants to come in and watch it with us. And then we'll be making our announcements on our next upcoming events, things we're going to be doing in the future um, so that everybody will be involved with that. Um, again, like I said, Instagram and Valor, or you go to ValorBK.com. Uh, and on January 7th, we're going to be doing our launch party. So you guys can come join us then. We'll be making all our new announcements on our fighting events coming up and, the, and and our vision moving forward. So, But I also, too, want to talk about the guys that <clears throat> really helped me get here. And there's a lot of them. I can't name them all. There's a lot of people behind the scenes. But there's just a few guys I want to name. Maddie, uh, Miranda, who, you know, uh, and also Todd um, Middendorf. I came to them with my vision. And, uh, you know, obviously the vision and stuff like that's great, but I got to have somebody be able to, to get it out to people. Like I have to be able to show this vision that I have. And so I remember going to Maddie, who was a longtime Lions Den member, along with Todd, longtime Lions Den member. Um, Maddie has uh, pretty successful businesses in a lot of different areas. So I came to him and, and asked if he could help me uh, put this business plan and, and everything together. And, he said, yeah, especially after the first fight, man. He was like, dude, this is this is, this is is like lightning in a bottle. And so he jumped on, built our business plan. Um, you know, we're moving forward now. I'm really happy where we're at right now, the energy and everything we've got. Uh, Todd, he's been in this fight game. Uh, he was training with Jerry Bolander way back when uh, in Napa. And so he's been in it a long time, knows a lot of fighters, uh, has done a lot of promotions himself. Um, so I, I brought him in to kind of, kind of put that show together um, so that we are able to experience this vision I have. Uh, Steve, who is doing all our tech stuff. I mean, he's he's doing a great job on that. Andy doing the marketing, uh, all the new age marketing stuff that we've got going on. So appreciate that. He's doing a hell of a job there. He isn't even, he isn't, we haven't seen the, we've only seen the tip of the iceberg with what 
these guys could do with the tech and the marketing. Um, and I look forward to seeing where that goes. Um, Ted, um, who is my Ted K, who is my manager, um, also has a lot of connections, very involved with putting a lot of these things together, helping build the team. So he's, he's really, uh, very valuable. Um, we have two Alex's, Alex Nace, Alex Houlihan, who've done the NFTs, the cryptos, that whole connection stuff in there. They've done a great job. And then Nick, who does our production, um, great job there. Uh, he's out of uh, Florida. So really, really got a great team. There's a lot of other guys that I just can't go through them all, but just, I, I, I've been blessed. I, I really got a great team. A lot of stuff we've done and trying to put this together. You know, me coming from the fight world, doing everything I did in the fight world, being champion, building my own business there with the fight team and the lion's den. But man, when I try to jump into this, man, there was a lot of things I didn't know. And so uh, having these this, this team behind me, being able to pick up some of the pieces um, that I shattered along the way uh, to, to keep this thing moving forward uh, is very appreciative. And so I really look forward to the future. I think right now we're in a good place. And uh, I really, really, really want the fans to see what we what we got. January 7th, man. I look forward to January the 7th, Ken. I'll be watching, absolutely. And great, the team and the ethos of the team that you've got and thanking all them guys, man. You know, the sum of, the sum of its parts, Valor, the team that you've got behind you, amazing, amazing. Ken, we've got fans' questions. There is loads. There's MMA-based ones, there's pro wrestling ones. And the first one I'm going to ask you about is Chris Hume had you on Big Fight Weekly earlier in the year, around the summer, and he wants to ask about Tito because he couldn't get round to it, but you covered a lot. And he wants to just say, working with Tito on The Ultimate Fighter. And yeah, just was it real with this stain for Tito Ortiz? I think that's what he's after finding out. Yeah, me and Tito had some some heat. Uh, we were we were definitely uh, going after one another. and But it was my nature um, that anybody that I fought, I always, <clears throat> I always tried to get into them because uh, it helped me prepare to fight them. Um, by nature, uh, I like people and I want to help people. And I just, um, I, I don't have that, that the tendency uh, to be angry at people. I want to be nice to them. Right. But when I was fighting, I had to build that. So that when I went into fought them, that I had nothing but anger and frustration to fight them. And I had to have that or otherwise I wouldn't go in there and really do my job. So Every fight I went into, I tried to pick on somebody just to find out something that bothered me about him. And Tito was a great opponent for me because I didn't have to look very deep because he gave me all I needed to not like him at different things because we were both good at building fights. And we would go, and he was the same way. He got into people and, um, you know, same kind of deal. So I thought we were really, really well matched together, especially during that time. When UFC was struggling, uh, we were able to really build those numbers up and create an awesome uh, momentum change. Absolutely. Bisping was on that Ultimate Fighter as well. He wanted to know your thoughts on Michael Bisping. Fantastic what he managed to do. You know, he was carrying it on his own to a certain extent over here for a long, long time. And uh, yeah, just your thoughts on Bisping. I know he was on Tito's team. He selected him. But yeah, he wanted to know about Bisping, your thoughts on him and his career and him going into the Hall of Fame with UFC. Yeah, Bisbee was a very, very talented kid. And it wasn't that he was just a guy that was born with talent. He worked at it. I mean, like he put himself in a position to win because he worked hard. 
Uh, he put himself in the right positions to, to get things done. And then when he got his opportunities, he made the most of them, just like with the reality fighter. You know, um, he may have not have been the best guy there, but he worked harder than anybody. Mm -hmm. uh, he put himself in best position to be able to beat guys that may have had more skill sets than him at that time. Uh, but because of his work ethic and his desire to win, he pushed himself to that level. And I, I and his character, he's a good guy. Absolutely, so so cool. When he when he finally got the belt, when he beat Rockhold, I was I was made up. I was elated. You know, all that years of trying to get to it and. Yeah, fantastic career he's had. Now, back on to wrestling. And this is from my good friend, Mike Angus. My favourite has got to be the Val Venus versus Shamrock match with Billy Gunn as ref. Ask him, how was it working with Ryan Shamrock? And he's put in quotation marks, slap me. <laughs> yeah, I think everybody heard that. Slap me. <laughs> yeah, I, I think she forgot the this, this spot because uh, we were standing for a while and I kept saying, got slap me. <laughs> so, but it was a great, I enjoyed working with us. Uh, Billy Gunn was a good friend of mine. Uh, we used to travel together, us, me and Road Dog, and also um, Brian Shamrock, who played my sister. We all traveled together. So uh, we were pretty close. But Val Venus is another great hand. Um, at that time, again, we had a lot of great, great guys there. Some of the guys that weren't starred uh, in main event matches could have been main event anywhere else. Um, mm -hmm. We just were loaded. And Val was one of those guys that had a lot of talent. Um, again, we were just stacked. So a lot of us never really got the title shot or a title run um, because of that. Not because we weren't good enough. It was just it was just so many good guys. Absolutely, absolutely. David G asks, which two modern day wrestlers, and I think he means pro wrestlers, he's no, no, actually, no, it's wrestlers, MMA, um, wants to ask who could come and compete in a Lions Den match. No, it is pro wrestling, sorry. My mistake. Yeah, you know, it's hard to say because I think there's, it, it, when you're looking at pro wrestling, you truly don't know the talent, the aggressive talent someone has until you put them into a tryout so i really couldn't tell you that unless i actually could see guys you know go after one another in a training session then i could tell you whether or not they could be a, a go into a lion's den match i love the lion's den match as well when you when they brought it over it was amazing yeah. but being younger never seen it before it's like what is this obviously seen the cage matches you know the traditional day but i was like what's this what are we gonna see they were amazing it was right. so cool. It was so cool bringing that over to the pro wrestling game, man. I loved it, um, especially when they told me about the idea. I had to come up with some of the design. Mm -hmm. um, I wanted the slant because they were going to put it straight, and I was like, "Man, that's this can be hard to work in if we can't use the actual cage," you know. So we developed the slant a little bit. Um, the the walkway on top, I thought, was very creative and more of a uh, movie type atmosphere where you could have the refs walk the top <laughs> so kind of like you're stuck in prison watched by a guard uh, <laughs> death match uh then putting weapons at the top in the second uh time that we use it we actually yeah. uh, black men we put weapons up so it was really creative and really awesome to be a part of that that vision uh being able to help make that come real and uh yeah it was great i i'm shocked that we haven't seen it since they, they, they've done it. NX, NXT, I think, have done it. You know, Daniel Daniel Cormier was the ref. So obviously, oh, did uh, they do it? Did they do yeah, it? Yeah, yeah. Rid, uh, Riddle, 
No, actually, it was on the main card. It was Extreme Rules. Sorry, again, I'm making mistakes here. It was Seth, Seth Rollins and Riddle. Obviously, Riddle coming from the MMA, yeah? And Cormier was the ref. It was main main roster, sorry. My mistake. Wow. So they recently, recently, Ken. You, you'll have to check that out. Yeah, well, I, I knew they were doing it. I didn't know they were going to do it in that cage. I loved, I loved the fact Cormier was in as, as the ref. I thought that was a cool addition, how much he loves pro wrestling. Right, yep. I'm going to extend now, obviously, you made light of Steve Blackman. And Roman asks, how tough was Steve Blackman? I know it's... Uh, how tough was Steve Blackman? Yeah, Steve is legitimate. I mean, he was a guy that nobody wanted to mess with. Yeah, he had, the, But he was a nice guy. Like, he was genuinely a nice person. When you walk up to him, a lot of people probably were afraid of him because he didn't talk a whole lot. Um, but when you got to know him, man, he was a really nice guy. But he wasn't the kind of guy that would really talk a whole lot. He was more mm -hmm. kind of inter by himself and, you know, wouldn't mingle a whole lot. But once you got to know him, man, he was a good dude. Mike Roberts asks, what were your thoughts on Vader? You know, we spoke about Vader in, in the 97 portion of your WWE run. But, yeah, he wants to know just a bit more on Vader. Yeah, Vader was a tough dude. I mean, like, for a big man, he moved really well. He moved fast. Uh, he was quick, and he was he was big. I mean, he could do all kinds of things that small men could do. So uh, I was really impressed with his athletic ability, as big as he was. And he was a nice guy. Absolutely, absolutely. Now, John Matthews asks, another cheeky one would be, how did he feel about his WWF entrance music? Personally, I believe it's one of the most underrated themes ever. Great to run to and go to the gym to. So I, I love the entrance music. It's up there as one of my favorites, Ken. Yeah, they did it. I, I thought they, they did me really well with that because I, I agree. I think besides probably Stone Cold's, uh, I thought that mine was right there with it. I thought it was just really well put together. Very exciting. Punch uh, you up. I wanted to do the thing to my head. My dad <laughs> caught me one. My dad caught me one day, actually. He's what you're doing. I said, it's what Ken Shamrock does. And he obviously knew who you were. He's like, right, okay. So, yeah, I was doing it into the mirror one day as a youngster. So, there you go. There you yeah. go. Adam Roberts asks, if you could bring any rule back from Pride to the UFC, but I think obviously modern promotions as well, what would it be? That's what Adam Rod Roberts asks. Yeah. I I don't – I I'm not much on rules. Um, I'm not sure that – I, honestly, I think that if there was one thing that I probably would bring back because it really, I think it tested everybody's cardio was that I wanted, I would rather do the 10 minute first round, 10 minutes, and then go into the five. Because I think that it gives, it, it really, it really, it separates the guys that are in great shape and the guys that are not. Okay. No, that's good. Good answer. Good answer. Hugh Roberts, a friend from Wales here. Are you still in touch with the guys that were training at the Lions Den back in the day? Obviously, you've said about Valor and the guys involved from the Lions Den. And, and he thinks Guy Mesker still a trainer there, but the likes of Jerry Bolander he's asking about as well in his question. Yeah, I don't have much contact. Uh, we like Every now and then we'll hit each other on text or we'll see somebody in a cross in crossing. Um, you know, like Vernon, I just the other day got a text from him. Um, you know, guy is always there, you know, I haven't talked to him lately, but I know he's always there. 
Um, Jerry Bolander, I think it's been a year, but through social media, we still stay in contact. So there's a lot of them still there. Um, every now and then I, I get contacted by them or, or I'll, I'll see them in crossing. Mm-hmm. Um, just like anybody in life, man, you, you're, you don't stay in one place. You constantly keep growing and moving forward, or at least you should. And then things change around you as you start growing and improving your lifestyle, improving your, your financial situations. You keep improving and keep moving up. And sometimes your people that you started with at point A, you're not as close to or around when you're at point C. Um, they're all off doing their own things, but you're still there and you know they'll always be there if you need them. You'll always remain mm-hmm. friends and connected for life. You know you'll always, if you ever need them, you know they're there and vice versa. Cool. Oh, nice answer, Ken. Nice answer. Justin Clapper from Justin Clapper's Pro Wrestling Show. I want to ask the mindset from MMA to pro wrestling. Has he ever had a moment in wrestling where he got lost in the moment and maybe brought it a little harder than he should have? Good question, Justin. Oh, yeah, absolutely. Vader being one of them. Whereas that we were going so well that I remember throwing a knee and he ducked down at the same time I threw a knee and I broke his nose. Um, so yeah, you know, we have those moments, but we're professionals. We realize that we still have a job to do and we got to make sure we get it done. And so, you know, Vader was a a real professional. I mean, never had an issue with him. He never catered me. uh, Although most people think he did, but he never did. He he was always good. He made everything look vicious and aggressive and that I appreciated. Good question, that, Justin. I like that one. Um, my friend Tom Perrett as well. What was his feelings at WrestleMania 14 making the rock tap? Yeah, it was, uh, again, uh, one of the matches that was always uh, something special for me is being able to throw the, 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 the lock on and making him tap. And then, of course, having the uh, time where we, we did the match where it actually went in a reversal. So a lot of great experiences with the rock and finishes that we were able to put together. Wesley Stover over in the US of A. What is his favorite memory of his wrestling NWA TNA? Because I wanted to lead this one. Obviously, your TNA run got the NWA title, the first first guy to get it in TNA. So, yeah, great question. What is his favorite memory of wrestling there? Yeah, you know, uh, I got a couple of them. I would say probably the TNA thing, um, capturing the Intercontinental title, the tag team title, even the rookie of the year. Uh, most improved wrestler. I mean, I did it all. It was like mm-hmm. um, a lot of special moments. And I would say the one that probably ranks up there at the top would probably winning King of the Ring and beating The Rock. That's, that's no, what, what it, uh, yeah, fantastic, fantastic. Tony Simpson, this is the last fan question, Ken. If you had the choice, would you rather be WWF champion or have one last UFC title? Yeah, I both those. I do both. <laughs> I'm, not, I would, I'm not taking one over the other. <laughs> That's cool. That's cool. Thank you, everyone, for your questions for Ken. It was a good, good mix, good mix of both codes. I, I it was cool. It was cool. And uh, Ken, obviously, I think just one last plug for Valor Bare Knuckle before we go as well of the January seventh event and where the fans can find you as well away from Valor VBK. Yeah, so um, we have, it's called Valor Sports, but you can go to our website, it's valorbk.com, 
or you can go to our Instagram, which is Valor. Um, also, too, I have my own uh, where you can find out everything that I'm doing also, which would be my Instagram is called Kent Shamrock Official. Um, so, yeah, check it out, man. January 7th, man, we're going to do a launch party. Um, go to our Valor app and check it out, man. Appreciate you all. Thank you. Thank you. My guest today, UFC Hall of Famer, Luther's Hall of Famer as well. It's legendary MMA pioneer, legend of pro wrestling as well, Mr. Ken Shamrock, the world's most dangerous man. Absolute pleasure having you on Stu's Wrestling Podcast today, sir. Appreciate you. Thank you. That was an absolute honour having the UFC Hall of Famer, the Luthers Hall of Famer in pro wrestling, Ken Shamrock on the show there. As you heard, Valor, Bear, Knuckle, VBK, their next show will be on January the 7th. You could really hear the passion there from Ken Shamrock and the way they're doing their Bear Knuckle promotion differently to other people. So yeah, please, please look for them on socials, Valor, Bear Knuckle, VBK and on their website too, you can find them. Thank you so, so much to Ken for all his insight on his career. A wonderful career when you listen to all the different things that he has managed to do and he's succeeded in. It's amazing, what a career. And to do it in cage fighting and pro wrestling, that's just amazing, so, so good. Thank you everyone for your questions as well. You could really see Ken enjoyed answering them. And yes, this has been episode 135 with Ken Shamrock, the world's most dangerous man. And we'll see you very, very soon for episode 136. Take care.